That's a great song with a tremendous message, isn't it? Amen. Well, <clears throat> I'd say take your Bibles and turn somewhere, but I guess you could. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll do that, okay? I'll give you just a couple of statements, and then we'll get moving along. We've been addressing um, just some biblical issues here. The last couple of weeks, we uh, were talking a little bit about uh, the prophets and what they saw and they didn't see and all of those things. So I want to kind of move along and just kind of, kind of build on that slightly and kind of continue to go forward with that. But 
There's no fact in history, no fact in history that's more established, more clear than the fact of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, I mean, we've been celebrating it for years in our country. We know that around the world for years and years and years, there have been people that have recognized, acknowledged, and stood for the fact that Christ indeed did come. But his first coming didn't fulfill all the prophecies that were associated with his coming. And I think it's important to recognize that because as a result of that, there has to be another coming. Again, the first coming uh, was prophesied, but not all the prophecies pointed to the first coming. Uh, Many of them, more even so, pointed to the second coming. Therefore, it facilitates and necessitates another coming, which is the second coming. And as we mentioned last time we met, The religious leaders of their day and those prophets failed to really distinguish between the prophecies that related to the first coming versus the second coming. And they struggled with uh, identifying which ones those were. Now, as a result of that, they rejected the Savior. They honestly just could not wrap their minds around Christ coming to be crucified and not reigning and ruling as was prophesied. And so they, remember we talked about the fact that they didn't see really uh, even the church age. They didn't recognize there would be that space of time. They thought there would be one coming and that Christ at that point would rule and reign and would fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament. However, that wasn't the case. Again, they struggled to recognize the difference. The difference between the suffering and the, 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 the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, we, we don't really have that issue, do we? I mean, we can look back now on all of this. And we can see the prophecies that, were, uh, that, that have pointed to the first coming, and we can kind of remove those, and we recognize that there are many that are still focused on the second coming now. And so we have a much better view looking back than they did looking forward. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, the Bible says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. You see that? Now, again, notice it's the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, we're looking back at that, and we recognize the fact that he suffered. No doubt about that. That's quite obvious. But he hasn't yet to, as the passage says here, experience the glory that should follow. Hey, that hasn't happened yet. So, again, they didn't see that there was a period of time where The cross would take place and the crown would be received. They couldn't see that, but we can. You know, we recognize that because we're looking back. They were looking forward, we're looking back. And so we can, as I said already, remove those prophecies and say, well, that applied to the first coming, therefore, these must apply to the second coming. And they do. So we have no excuse. When we consider many of the prophecies given concerning Christ's coming, many of them point to the second coming, by the way. The majority do, really. And it should be clear then that as important as the first coming was, 
It is not the central theme of the Bible. Again, this is one of those things that maybe because of the time in which we live, the dispensation in which we live, and uh, we look back on the cross and we say that's got to be the greatest event ever because we're saved. But that is not the crowning moment. The reality is is that Christ is still going to rule and reign. I guarantee you this, that God in heaven is looking more, much more forward to the fact of his son ruling and reigning in his proper place on the throne than he is to watch him be crucified. And again, it's, it's not that both aren't necessary. It's not that both aren't needed. I understand that. But we need to realize that there's even a bigger day on God's calendar than the death of Jesus Christ. The second coming places Christ on the throne of David to rule and to reign where he rightly deserves to rule and reign. And that day's still ahead. That day's still coming. No doubt we needed the the crucifixion. No doubt we need the return of Christ. And we're going to see that they're both absolutely necessary and, again, um, needful. Now, last week we noted how the Apostle Paul pointed out the first and the second coming of Christ And then he kind of included this idea of how to live between them. Again, let's just review very quickly. Turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We just kind of, in a nutshell, just kind of pulls it all together here. Notice what he says here in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. If you've gotten to Timothy, go to Titus, the next book over. So, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. It's kind of tucked in there. You can kind of lose it, you know what I mean? Titus chapter 2. Notice what it says in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. See, again, we see the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look over in verse 13 looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. And then we said in verse 12 that he focuses on how to live between the two comings. And that's where we're at today, right? He says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And that's kind of where we ended last time. And we said, okay, what are we going to do now? You know, we're in between the two comings. The the first coming, he came, and of course, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He walked the dusty trails of Galilee. He laid down his life on behalf of you and I. He literally took our place and paid for our sin. And one day, he's coming back. We're going to talk about the second coming here in just a few moments. But what are we going to do in the meantime? How are we going to deal with it now? What are we going to, what kind of position will we take? What kind of lifestyle will we live? All of those things are important. And so the Apostle Paul links the two comings together with how we're supposed to live today. And again, we spent some time on that last week and will not continue to dwell on it. But we learned a few things. We learned as a prophet, he died for our justification. Just as if we never sinned. Remember, you get saved, you're justified. And just to make it real simple, just as if you never sinned. That's pretty good. I like that, right? And then as a priest, he lives at the, and, and, and he's seated at the right hand of God. Not only as our advocate, but our sanctifier. 
And then finally, when he comes again as a king, it will be for our glorification. And so we'll touch on a few of these things along the way, but the first and second coming are separated, as we mentioned, by the church age. And they're not complete without one another. The first, the second coming, both work together. They're both necessary to complete the plan of salvation. So, I could say it this way. The first coming was for our salvation, the salvation of our soul. The second coming is for the salvation of our body. The truth is, is that there could be no resurrection of the body until there's the second coming of Christ. So we want to get that new body. I want that new body. You die today, you, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You die today, you close your eyes, your body goes into a grave, but you go to be with the Lord. You still don't have a body like you're going to have in eternity. You don't get that body till Christ returns, till the second coming. And so we're waiting for that day. Even if you die before he returns, you're going to be looking forward to that day. And so will I. Because that body we're going to have, as we'll note here, not so much tonight probably, but later down the road, is a body very much like his, if not exactly like his. So nonetheless, let's go ahead and consider this issue, the, 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 the second coming. Because I tell you, it's important, isn't it? It's something we ought to be looking forward to. Let's pray. Father, bless us now in these next few minutes. We need you. We thank you for what you've already shared with us through these last weeks. And Lord, just help us to be encouraged now by the word of God. Lord, help us to learn something about your second coming. How wonderful it will be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so when we consider the second coming, we talk about the second coming of the Lord. We're, we're really got to recognize that it comes in basically two stages. We talk about the rapture or a catching away, and then, of course, there's the revelation. The rapture, we know he comes in the clouds and he calls us up and out. And again, the whole church age is predicated on the idea or the fact that he's calling out the bride. That's what it's really all about. And I know we're to evangelize the world, but really, he's looking for a bride. That's what he's searching for. That's why not everybody in the world is going to be saved, by the way. Uh, we, we're not called to save the world. We're called to, to give the gospel and let God worry about calling out those who belong in the body of Christ, those who belong, so to speak, in the bride of Christ, those who will accept and receive and become part of that body. Now, again, it's obvious. You look at prophecy, you look at the scriptures, you go out in the streets and knock on doors, you realize that not everybody's going to trust the Lord. But I promise you this, until that last person saved, Christ is not returning until that bride is complete. That's all there is to it. And so he's, there's a bride being removed and taken out from this old world in which we live. And when that body or that bride is complete, guess what? We're out. And uh, I'm kind of hoping it's before I die. But anyway, we're going to look at just a little bit about this. We're going to kind of focus primarily on just, um, just the second coming in general. And you're going to see, we're going to look at a couple of facts uh, that point to the, the, the reality of the second coming of the Lord. And uh, again, the um, Old Testament saints, they kind of got some things mixed up, but you know, we still get some things mixed up, to be honest with you. And uh, we're looking back. So I got to believe it had to be extremely difficult for them from time to time. 
So let's consider the testimony of Jesus Christ. I mean, he, he believed in the second coming, right? That's what he taught. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Again, let's consider what Christ himself taught about the second coming. He's coming back again. We know that. How do we know that? Well, he testified to that himself. Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, the Bible says, verse 27. Let's look there. He said, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Again, he's coming back. That's the point again. Now again, we'll have to make the distinction down the way, along the way as to whether he's talking about the rapture or he's talking about the revelation. But we know that the second coming involves or encapsulates both. It's very difficult to divide the two. So when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks at times, it's going to be tough to identify which one sometimes he's dealing with. It takes a little study. It takes a little work. Notice in Matthew 25, verse 31. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. In chapter 25, verse 31 and 32, we're going to read... says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth the sheep from his, the goats. Now, obviously, that one's a lot simpler to understand, and we know right where that sets. We see him coming back at the Revelation, and he's making a division between the sheep and goat nations, and ultimately those who will go into the millennium versus those that will be simply... Uh, done with. And so we see what's going on there, okay? John chapter 14. This is one of my, some of my favorite verses. We see him talking to the disciples as he's preparing to go to Jerusalem and ultimately die. And he says in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Again, when we look at that passage, obviously we start thinking of ourselves of the rapture itself, the believer being taken up and out prior to the tribulation period. But nonetheless, all part of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came the first time, he's got to come back again. Because it's been prophesied, it's been foretold, it's been promised, and he's made the promise himself, he's coming back. The testimony of Jesus himself. Not only that, but I want you to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 10 now. It's interesting, uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ is preparing to go back to be with the Lord when he's going to uh, leave this earth after uh, being crucified, now he's headed back. It's called the Ascension. And we're going to see there at the Ascension that there's a couple of men hanging around, and they make a statement that's pretty interesting. Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. We're talking about the second coming, and we've got the testimony of these heavenly beings, these men that are going to speak now. Notice what they say in chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you in heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Again, notice the passage states that this same Jesus shall return in like manner as he went. That is, his return is going to be visible. It's going to be personal. He's going to also, you're going to be able to see it. That's interesting. 
Now again, understand who he's talking to, what the circumstances are, but we're going to see that there's an element here where you're going, now is that he's talking about the revelation or is he talking about the rapture? And you talk about, we're, we're, we're starting to wonder every once in a while, can you imagine how those Old Testament prophets felt? Again, so we have these men, these men over here telling us, and again, if it's going to come in like manner, then we know he doesn't really arrive at the earth until the revelation. Okay? And yet the principle of the return of Christ is being taught and very clearly expressed here in this passage. Now again, it's possible. Think about these two men. It's, I thought it was kind of interesting because when you think about these guys here, you think, well, they got to be angels, right? I mean, let's face it. I mean, it's angels. I mean, look what they're wearing. I mean, they got these, I mean, look, look at what they're wearing here. Let's see here if I can find it. Uh, let's see. Um, it says, they stood by them in white apparel. White apparel. Man, that's got to be an angel. That's Casper the Friendly Ghost, right? I mean, it's, or, or something. That's something like that. It's something crazy, right? But notice it says here that there's two men. I think that's kind of interesting. Could it be possible that these two men have been around a while? Could it be possible that maybe they even lived on the earth at some point? Is it possible? You say, why are you bringing it up? I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I mean, you can believe whatever you want about that. Honestly, it's not going to change our salvation. It's not going to change our, our Baptist affiliation. It's not going to change our doctrinal statement as far as the church is concerned. But I think it's kind of interesting to consider. I wonder, maybe these two men appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look, if you would, in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Notice what it says in verse 1. And after six days, I think that's kind of interesting already. I'm not going to go into all that mess, but after six days sounds pretty good. Days is a thousand years. Uh, anyway, moving on. I like it. He could be coming back soon. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. So all of a sudden now, we've got Moses and Elijah over there. He, they're, they're having a conversation with Jesus Christ. I think that's kind of interesting already. You think about, you think about Elijah. What happened to Elijah? Well, Elijah, remember, the whirlwind and he goes up. So Elijah never really died. Yet he has to have a different body. There's no way because his body's not adapted for heaven. So he had to have gotten a body early somehow, some way. I don't get it, but that's what has to have happened. But then you got Moses. Remember the devil over in the book of Jude? He's disputing over the body of Moses. Why is he disputing over a body? What's the big deal, right? Could it be possibly that he's too going to find this body and now here they are in the bodies very, very similar to those millennial bodies that we will have? that the body of Christ will have. When we see Christ transfigured, we see him, uh, it's an interesting picture. And we see him in that millennial kind of look going there, don't we? And we see these men as the same. Now, I just wonder, maybe those are the two men that stood by that day. I mean, they were there at the Mount of Transfiguration. It's interesting because I'm not so convinced. I, I, I mean, I'm pretty convinced 
that these are the same two men that are going to be the two witnesses that testify during the tribulation in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. Turn over to Revelation chapter 11, verse 4. Revelation chapter 11, verse 4. The Bible teaches that there'll be two witnesses. These two witnesses are going to come to earth, and boy, I'll tell you what, they are not going to be very, very liked at all. And I mean, they're going to stomp them in the streets. They're going to be videotaping all of this, and it sounds like, and it appears, that the whole world's going to be watching. At one point, we could not figure that out. We could not see how that was going to ever happen. We understand it now, don't we? And the Bible says it's going to be almost like Christmas when they die. And we're going to throw a big party. It's going to be wonderful. The two witnesses, who are they? Well, it doesn't specifically say who, but watch what it does say about these witnesses in chapter 11, verse 4. It says, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Now again, this isn't at the end of it. It's the beginning. Notice, if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. Who's that sound like to you? That sounds a lot like Elijah calling fire down, destroying the prophets of Baal. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Hmm. Sounds a lot like Elijah. And have power over waters to turn them to Blood. Now that sounds a lot like Moses. And to smite the earth with all plagues. Hmm. That sounds like Moses too. All I'm saying is, is is it possible? Is it possible that Elijah and Moses, the very ones that were on the Mount of Transfiguration, are they also the very ones that will be in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation during the tribulation period? The two witnesses. I think there's a good chance. So we see them on the Mount of Transfiguration. We note them as being possibly the two witnesses. We see they're likely the two men that testified to the women at the tomb even. Remember there were two men? Interestingly enough, if look at sometime how they were dressed, how they looked. Why weren't they called angels? Why were they called men? I'm just saying there's a good possibility that we got Elijah and we got Moses showing up at these four events. The Mount of Transfiguration, the two witnesses in chapter 11, the men that have testified to the women at the tomb when Jesus was risen, it says that the two men stood by them in shining garments. I think it's interesting. It sounds a lot like the Transfiguration. And then, of course, it wouldn't be a far stretch if they're the two men at the Ascension either. So I just thought that was interesting. I thought that it's kind of neat how things kind of fall into place. Now, let's talk about the testimony of the apostles because we also have the, the apostles themselves. You know, men like Paul or James and Peter and Jude and John and even Titus. Paul the Apostle, Philippians chapter 3. Turn over there, would you? Philippians 3, verse 20. Jesus Christ is coming back. It was prophesied that he would come the first time. He, he, it was promised that he would show up, and guess what he did? I got to believe he's going to show up again. I just got to believe that. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Paul the Apostle, 
He's writing under inspiration of the Spirit, and he says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for him. We're keeping our eye open for him. We're looking into heaven. We're seeking him to return, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, he goes on to say, and again, I'm, I'm, I lean toward the idea that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So I'm just going to say that he wrote this. And again, if you don't believe he wrote Hebrews, well, then he didn't write it, but then somebody else did, and they got a pretty good idea that Jesus is coming back. Hebrews 9, 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of, of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's pretty solid, isn't it? Don't seem to leave any uh, question or any doubt there. Then we have Titus himself. We've already looked at it. Chapter 2, verse 13, when it says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, the testimony of these apostles. We see the book of James, chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. He's coming back. James says so, Titus says so, Paul the Apostle says so, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're speaking. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we're eyewitnesses of his majesty, it says. Who's speaking here? Peter is, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says something. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw this thing. We know what we're talking about. I mean, we made known unto you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, Peter, what makes you such an authority on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? How's come you can tell me you are an eyewitness of his majesty? Well, again, I think that what we're seeing here is him referring to and speaking about the transfiguration of Christ that we read about in chapter 17 of the book of Matthew. He saw Christ as he would come in those clouds, as he would return and sit on the throne of David. He saw him in his millennial body, seen him transfigured. And he says, I'm telling you, I know what I'm talking about. I've seen it already. God gave me a glimpse. He's coming back. Then we think of Jude in Jude chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. By the way, there's only one chapter in Jude. Don't let that shake you. <laughs> Jude, verses 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these sayings, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoke against him. Notice again, Enoch. What transpired and took place with Enoch? Okay, remember now, we're coming to a day when there's going to be a big flood. Enoch lives prior to the flood. The Bible says that he what? Walked with God, and he was not. Literally, God took him out before the flood. Before he poured out his wrath, God removed Enoch. 
He translated it. That's what he's going to do for us before the tribulation. John says in Revelation 1-7, go turn there, would you please? That's something I'm glad I know the verses well enough to know that I just mixed up the, there it is, that one belongs in 1 John, the other one's Revelation, here we go. Okay, let me give you the Revelation one. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindred of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. That sounds a lot like the revelation, doesn't it? When he returns to the earth and the Jewish people recognize the one who they crucified as being Messiah. Notice here in John chapter, excuse me, in First John 2.28, it says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed of, at, ashamed of ashamed at his coming. Ashamed before him at his coming. Again, really kind of amazing, really, this testimony. The second coming is a fact. See, the prophecies concerning the first coming were fulfilled completely. The same prophets that foretold the first coming foretold the second coming. We have a list of New Testament writers who confirmed the coming of Jesus Christ or the second coming. Do you realize that one verse in every 30 in the New Testament refers to Christ's second coming? There are 20 times as many references in the Old Testament to Christ's second coming as to his first coming. Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, he refers 13, uh, refers 13 times to baptism while he speaks of the Lord's return 50 times. I'm telling you, the second coming is pretty serious business. God wants us to keep our eye on the sky. God wants us to be looking forward to it. And can I tell you, in the day and age in which we live, it's going to become more important that we keep our eyes off of this whole world and keep them focused on heaven and Him. Again, in 1 John 2.28, it says, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. It's interesting, in the book of John, chapter 15, verse 5, we spent a lot of time on it when we did, dealt with our theme last year. Do the simple well. No, that was prayer. Last year, it was do the simple well two years ago. Last year when we did prayer, we spent a lot of time on this verse. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. We see that we are to abide in Him. Already we noted that. We're told if we abide in Him, then we won't be ashamed at His coming. So what's it mean to abide? Well, we noted here in, first, in John chapter 15 that He's the vine, we're the branches, and we have to abide in Him. That word abide literally just means to rest or to dwell in Him. 
It's real simple. It's not that complicated. But this passage points to a relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the vine. We're simply the branches. And we have to understand that we're going to need to abide in him. And if we abide in him, we're going to produce much fruit. The same bringeth forth much fruit, he says. When we rest in Christ and we continue permanently in his presence, we are bound to bring forth much fruit. Now, I think it's kind of interesting then, because if we are the branches, he's the vine, of course, and we're to abide in him, and if we abide in him, we're going to bring forth much fruit. And 1 John, he makes the statement in the book of 1 John, the same writer, of course, and now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So John's saying here in 1 John, he's saying, now listen, you abide in him so you're not ashamed when he returns. And then in John chapter 15, he says, listen, if you abide in him, you're going to bring forth much fruit. So if we don't abide in him, we're going to be ashamed at his coming. But we could also probably say then, based on what I think we're reading, if we, don't, if we don't produce much fruit, we'll be ashamed when he comes. You see the correlation here. Again, it's pretty simple. In 1 John, if we abide in him, we do that, that when he shall appear, and he is coming back, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So by abiding in him, we can avoid being ashamed. By abiding in him, according to John chapter 15, we're going to produce much fruit. So if we don't produce much fruit, it seems to me we're just going to simply be ashamed when he comes back. Because that's the outcome of abiding. What kind of fruit are you producing? And how much fruit am I producing? I mean, am I going to bring forth much fruit? Well, I got a little fruit to my account. I got a little bit. Yeah, I got some fruit. If we're abiding in it, we'll have much fruit. I don't know about you, but that's a sobering thought for me. That you, you, you say, well, how do, I, how do I judge how it's going to be in the future? I mean, how's God going to look at my life? I'm going to tell you something. You can go ahead and all day long walk around going, God doesn't care about what I do. All God cares about who I am. All that matters is my heart. That's all that matters. All that matters is my heart. Let me tell you, you got your heart right. You're going to have much fruit, according to that book right there. The problem is we keep trying to substitute 
uh, our heart for our works and we try to say somehow that God's not concerned about what we do with our hands and our feet and our lips and our tongue and our mind. No, He cares about all that stuff. As a matter of fact, He correlates it here between 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 and John chapter 15, verse 5. If you are abiding in Him, you're going to produce much fruit. And if you're abiding in Him, you'll not be ashamed. But you will be ashamed if you're not abiding. And that means you have not produced much fruit. It's pretty simple. We like to complicate it. And we like to do that. We like to try to break it all down, put it in little simple boxes so we can focus on this box and say, my heart's right with God. You can't judge my, my, my heart by my actions. But God will. God's going to. Okay, so maybe I can't, but he will. And you don't have to worry about how I look and how I view you really right now. You better be concerned about how he's going to view you when he returns. And I don't know about you, but and, and this idea, well, I'll just be happy I made it to heaven. I'm telling you right now, he talks about that in Corinthians chapter 10 when he talks about the terror of the Lord. And I know we're saved, we're saved by his power divine, saved through new life sublime. Life now is free and my joy is complete for him. Saved, saved, saved. I get that. I don't know about you. I don't want to be ashamed when he comes back. I don't. Go ahead. We can make excuses all day long for why we don't put him first, why we don't abide in him, why everything else is more important. We can do that all day long, but it won't, it won't, it won't hold water when he returns. That's not going to hold water. I want to encourage you to think about this question. Am I bearing much fruit? And much fruit can be obviously defined in a number of ways. But I think we could very easily point to Galatians chapter 5, though. Verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Much fruit? How you doing in that area then? Because that's, the, that's where we have to really measure ourselves. Because when I see that fruit, you know who I see? Jesus. And that's exactly who we're to be like. Just like Jesus. So if you don't want to be ashamed of his coming, get to looking like him. If I don't want to be ashamed of his coming, I need to get to looking like him. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you to speak to our hearts and work in our lives. We desperately need you. We thank you for your word, and Lord, it is. It's, uh, it's straightforward in so many ways. It outlines and lays out.